Life can take us on unexpected paths that leave us with emotional wounds and scars. But these scars do not have to be a burden that we carry alone. I'm Jocelyn Biederset, a childhood sexual assault survivor, and this is Invisible Scars, a podcast where we connect and learn from those who have come out stronger on the other side of trauma. Welcome back to another episode of Invisible Scars. And today I am so excited to be sitting down with Katherine Pennington. She is a certified professional coach and registered professional counselor. And we discuss everything from PTSD, complex trauma, healing modalities for it, as well as Catherine's personal experiences navigating CPTSD. In this episode, Catherine is brave enough to share her own personal experiences as a child, the trauma that she has experienced, and everything that she has done to get to where she is today. We also get into how trauma is stored in the body, and this is something I am so excited to discuss. It's something that I have experienced personally, and I just can't wait for you guys to hear Catherine's perspective on it. She's also doing a year-long mentorship with Dr. Gabor Mate, and she walks us through what that looks like for her and how what she's learning can help all of us in our everyday life. This episode does discuss child sexual assault, abuse, and neglect. So if you or anyone you know is suffering with the effects of trauma, or if you're feeling triggered by this episode, I really encourage you to reach out to our email address at hello at invisiblescarspodcast.com and a certified therapist will get back to you. I hope you enjoy today's episode. So Catherine, I'm so excited to welcome you to Invisible Scars today. I'm really, really excited for this episode. Well, I am so honored to be here with you, Jesslyn, and just, you know, raise my hands to you for creating this platform and for creating a space where people can learn about trauma, trauma recovery and resilience. And so thank you for creating the space. It's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much. You've been such a supporter of mine from the beginning. And it honestly has meant so much to me because I just, I look up to you. I respect you and everything you're doing so much. I was actually very nervous for today's episode because I just wanted to be able to create a space for you to give you justice to tell your story and all the amazing work that you're doing. So, well, you know, I think the, the feeling is mutual. I'm, <laughs> I'm equally as, as, uh, as nervous and maybe anxious. And I think what's really interesting was, um, I have been asked to be on podcasts yeah. in the past and I've never taken the opportunity to do it. I've never said yes, but this was like a full body. Oh, yes. My I was like, I I so am interested in what you're doing. So yeah, very you happy. You have to no be idea how much that means to me. No pressure, right? No pressure. <laughs> it goes both ways. Okay. So before we get started, just to kind of get us comfortable, you know, I love each week with whoever I'm sitting down with to kind of hear what they're doing for their own mental health and things that they're doing to kind of keep themselves on track and when things get tough. And for you, you know, as a professional coach and therapist, I really want to know what you would do or something maybe that you would tell your clients. I'll get started though. So, you know, for myself, things I'm doing this week, um, I'm really leaning hard into appreciating my body. So it's been really a love-hate relationship as I've gone on through my life and really making sure that how I appeared on the outside did not match how I was appearing on the inside. So just being really grateful and moving my body in different ways. And I've really been trying hard to say when I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm not feeling so great. Just saying thank you to my body for um, keeping me safe, keeping me alive, keeping me strong and getting me through those things. And I'm really realizing the way I speak to myself really has such an impact on how I'm presenting myself to the world, how I am as a mother. And I'm trying to reframe that to my body and just saying, you know what, I love my body. It's not that I hate my body. I hate what I've done to my body. I hate that I haven't taken care of myself in the way that I should. So I'm, that's something I'm really working on. 
um, right now. And I'm feeling a lot better. It's working. The mind-body connection, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you fundamentally cannot separate them. No. What I love about what you're saying is actually part of what we're going to talk about today, Mm -hmm. which is that trauma lives in the body. Yes. Uh, emotions are an embodied, mm-hmm. embodied experience. Yeah. Right. So I, I think that's brilliant. You know, thinking about what what I'm doing. So one of the things that I'm really leaning into right now is exercising in a way that is parallel or commensurate to the situation or experiences that I'm having. So there was a a period of my life where um, exercise was probably more of a torture. Mm -hmm. Like it was like running or, you know, high interval intensity uh, training. Um, And I would push myself and I would do that. And one of the things that I've learned and actually learned this from a naturopath was that the, the, the mind doesn't really differentiate Mm -hmm. between physical stress and emotional stress. Yes. And so what I've learned about myself is that if I'm under stress or feeling stress and I think, oh, it would be good for me to go to hit class yeah. and just torture myself. Mm-hmm. What happens is I end up getting sick yeah. because it's just more stress upon stress. Now, I'm not saying don't go to hit. Go yeah. to hit if you love it. If, yeah. if it fills you up, that's great. But stop and think about it. Mm-hmm. And I listened to probably a lot of bullshit for a lot of years that yeah. walking was an exercise. Oh, gosh. That's not true. Yeah. You know, go for the walk, do the yoga, do the hip move. Mm-hmm. And that is what you need at the time. Really mm-hmm. listening. We talk about listening to our bodies. I'm an academic. I don't like basically my head is what's get carried around by my body. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I'm not really, that's not really my jam, but I'm certainly learning. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly learning. So that would be my, my statement on what I'm doing. Yeah. I actually love that you said that. Cause that is really the journey I've been on for the last year is I was that person who was going to the hit class and doing like the in extreme classes because I thought that's what I needed to do. But the pressure and stress I was already under. And I love what you said about being, it would make you sick. I was always sick. Like the trauma was stored in my body and was making me sick. And then all of that on top of it. So the last year I've really, um, leaned into Pilates and walking and doing things that's serving me really well and really gentle. And yes, there's been a change in my body, which comes to, you know, what I'm doing right now saying like, thank you. Thank you for keeping me safe. Like I'm, I'm, I don't hate my body. I hate what I've done. And now I'm owning it and I'm going to change it. So I love that you gentleness said that. is the medicine. Yes. And there may be a space in my life later where I'm like, yeah, sure. back to that. But you know, right now it's just not working. It doesn't make me feel good. So I love that you said that. Um, I'm really excited for everyone to get to know you because you have an incredible background. You're doing some incredible work. So why don't you just, um, you know, tell us a little bit about you and what you do and your practice and kind of where you're at right now. Well, I mean, we're we're sitting in the room. Yes, that m- many many things happen. So we're sitting today uh, in my office. It's my therapeutic space, and um, I am a practicing counseling psychotherapist in the province of British Columbia. Yes, uh, I'm also a registered professional coach. I would say I spend uh, the vast majority of my time these days um, in the space of counseling and therapy because coaching and therapy are very different disciplines. Now, there's a lot more crossover these days and lots of um, politics in this industry and Mm -hmm. lots of schools of thought, like any industry. But I spend most of my time working in a therapeutic space with individuals and with couples. And um, I love it. It's a true honor to sit with people 
and to be selected to be on their journey. For sure. Yeah. For them to sit here and entrust in you. And I have to say, meeting you, you're such a warm and welcoming person. You just have this, um, you know, you have this way about you that makes people want to know you and want to tell you what's going on with them. I truly feel that. So, um, you know, what got you into this? What is your, what is your education background? Um, was this always what you wanted to do? I think it was probably always what I wanted to do, but my education and my education background have a story. So it's probably a good place to yeah, start because I think there. it does relate to kind of the premise that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. So first of all, you know, my educational background is quite diverse. Uh, I've probably spent 10 or 12 years all told in university. I'm still in it today. I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning. Oh, I love that. And it's really important to me for a whole host of reasons. And one of them, I think, is um, I find a lot of joy in continually exploring and understanding. And it's also very helpful in my profession. So I've worked in the helping profession for over 20 years. So that's that's both in, I worked in child protection, social work, I worked in family services. I worked in human services. I worked in employment services. I worked and continue to work also in corporate Canada Mm -hmm. um, in different roles. So I have a bit of a diverse uh, employment situation. I have a practice and I work in corporate Canada. And so my background also includes, you know, some business school. And so a bit of a diverse background, which I think is quite helpful and attractive to people. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably because I can connect on a few different levels, like, for example, with entrepreneurs or stay-at-home moms or couples because of that. So a lot of diversity um, in the background. But, you know, let me tell you about why education is such an interesting thing for me. So when I was, I grew up in a really, really small community, a town of about 500 people. So my running joke is when people say to me, I grew up in a small town. I say, try me. Yeah. 500 people. You know, that's a small, I win. That's a small place. And And I went to the same school that actually my father went to. And I suspect that some of the dinosaur teachers that were teaching me were probably teaching him. Yeah, they were probably still there. Probably teaching before him. But I really struggled in school. And this would have been in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was diagnosed at the time with uh, dyslexia. What's really interesting about that is um, at the time we had a very small school. And at the time, we didn't have uh, much in the way of information yeah, that, that was limited shared, resources. limited resources that were shared with kids and families. And all I knew was that I was struggling and I was different. And I actually thought I had Down syndrome because there was a room for kids at the school that had Down syndrome. And that's, and that's where, they, where they used to send me to go for extra help. So I remember being in like grade one and thinking, do I have Down syndrome? And right. nobody's telling me. And I had nobody really to talk to about it for a whole host of reasons, which we'll get into later. And that was really my start on education. So it was right. a real struggle. So I had a label and it was really complicated for me. And so I struggled, you know, to be very honest with you, Jess, I barely made it through high school. Most people don't believe that when I tell them that. I, I'm going to tell you, it's hard I know, to believe. I know. Yes. Most, most people don't believe it. I barely made it through high school. I didn't. I didn't have any belief in myself. Um, academically struggled, uh, relied so heavily on, you know, friends and, you know, some good teachers, Mm -hmm. some really awful teachers. Mm -hmm. But I did make really a vow with myself when I graduated high school 
um, that I was going to go to university somehow. And we didn't have the economic resources. We didn't have that available to us. But I was really determined. And interestingly enough, I got a scholarship or a bursary from the Legion. I had a grandparent who had been in the war and I got a scholarship or a very small bursary. And I started out in an early childhood education program. Yeah. I think it's early child development, it was called. Now it's probably called something different. And from there, got a certificate, you know, went to the University of Regina, went to the University of Victoria. Um, you know, since then, have done a course at the London School of Economics, um, University of Calgary. I could go on wow. because I was like, there's no fucking way yeah. that I'm going to quit. I feel so seen because as somebody who I really look up to and I look at all your accomplishments and what you're doing, I, I'm i in awe of you. And to hear you say that, like I felt the exact, I barely made it. And um, I've, I've spent so many years feeling less than. Oh, when I, when I was listening to your story, I was actually driving to the lake and there were a couple of key things that were just like illuminated for me. But the one was about how, you know, there was a settlement and mm -hmm. nothing came to you and you could have used that to go to school. I looked down at my hand and I was clenching my shorts driving oh my to the lake. Like I was just like <laughs> clenching because I felt like so angry mm -hmm. for you because I thought, yeah, you could have, you know, yeah. but I will say this though. I'm not convinced that I actually had dyslexia. I suspect that there were some learning difficulties. I think there may have been a more appropriate diagnosis. It was the late seventies. It was emerging. Knew so little. It knew so little. I will say this though. What I learned on how to succeed and push through, I don't know that I would change that. No, me neither. But every time I start a course, I get really nervous. I'm in this one-year compassionate inquiry program, uh, this Dr. Gabor Mate's mm -hmm. program, and I'm in a cohort of international students, and we 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 do therapy on each other, um, you know, multiple times a week. It's part of the program. And my most recent session was that every time I start a new course, I feel completely anxious. I blank out and I want to go hide in bed for a couple of days. Yeah. And then I kind of work through it. But I've learned the skills to succeed. Yes. Based on key. the struggle. Yes. A hundred percent. I love that you said that. You know, I think back to what I could have done mm -hmm. and I don't know that I would have changed it. Just like you said, you know, um, I believe this has all happened for a reason and I'm feeling so fulfilled now, which I'm, which I, I would guess you are as well. I'm completely fulfilled. I love what I do. I have the, this incredible, um, privilege and honor of having knowledge and skills and training and because of the struggles in my life, I can connect with people yeah. in a way that gives me a sense of empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, don't stop, Jess, because I've got a client, you know, he he sits here, um, you know, every couple of weeks, yeah. uh, 65 years old, is doing his master's in business administration. Amazing. And he hasn't stopped. Yes. There's no rules that say you didn't do it when you were 20 or 25. Mm -hmm. That yes. somehow you, you can't do it now. And I would argue I wouldn't have been ready. No, so I would do not it. have been ready. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah, that probably one of the most relatable things I've ever heard someone say is just so incredible from someone like you to hear that. That's beautiful. You're a certified professional coach and registered professional counselor. So what does that mean to be those? Yeah, so every province has a different jurisdiction uh, for and different regulations for the field of counseling and psychotherapy. And it's different in the States and it's different internationally. 
So I am a registered therapist, a professional therapist. I am governed by a regulating body. I am licensed. You know, I have university degrees. I've written exams. I have a supervisor who I see routinely. Yeah. Um, and therapist, anybody who's ever watched The Sopranos, yes, she goes for therapy. That's her quote, uh, supervisor. Okay, yeah. So we all, you know, we all have those, and we work with counseling supervisors. And so I'm registered, which means that I'm listed on insurance company websites. You know, I can issue receipts for healthcare programs and payments, like etc. The reason why that's important um, in a place like British Columbia that has a different regulation system than other parts of the country is that there are practice uh, practitioners out there who uh, might do holistic um, counseling, like yep. holistic yoga, holistic Reiki, um, hypnotherapy. And I am a big supporter. There is so much we don't know about healing. I'm a full supporter of those practitioners and welcome them as part of our allied professionals. Mm -hmm. But it is different than seeing a registered therapist. So sure. it is really important, I think, that people recognize that. Now, coaching being a completely different field yep. has a different regulating system and body as well. Right. That's amazing. So I love what you said about the different types of therapy too, because the type of therapist I see, she is, um, you know, a clinical psychologist, but she also does something called intuitive therapy, mm -hmm. which um, I love. I've really leaned heavily into that. And it's something that um, I you know, this probably comes from somebody who lived in a really traumatic environment growing up, but my intuition is very loud and very strong and reading people and reading energies has just always been a part of who I am. Um, and I love that I can connect with her on that aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why it works so well for me. Sure. So I think too, finding somebody and the right type of therapy, I, I don't know if you would agree, but it's not a one size fits all. It's much like buying a pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you put a pair of shoes on and you're like, these are the shoes. Or yeah. like this dress, right? Yeah. It's from it's from your, it's from your from collection. <laughs> it's from your collection. And I put it on. It's like, that's the dress. Oh. Sometimes it's like that. Other times you put it on and it's like half a size too small. Yeah. Well, don't buy them. Don't see mm -hmm. someone that you don't really feel a connection with. The other thing is you can find a therapist that can work so well with you for the first period of time. Yes. But then you might need a little something different. Totally. And that is reasonable too. So I'm not an academic snob in this space that says, you know, you have to be a clinical psychologist and you have to have a master's degree in order to do yes. this work. No, I think there's a ton of room for responsible allied you know, healthcare yeah. providers and practitioners that can be integral on a person's healing journey. And it's going to be different for everyone. Oh, I love that. So, you know, what do your sessions look like? What can people expect if they come in here? Are all your sessions run in person? Do you do virtual? How do, how, how do you lay that out for everybody? Yeah. So generally speaking, my sessions are 50 minutes in length, 60 minutes of time. So yeah. that gives me a little bit of time on either end to connect mm -hmm. with people book next appointments at the end. So 50 minutes um, on and on balance. Couples is usually 90 minutes. Yeah. And most therapists will see couples for about 90 minutes. And I see people in person and I also see people virtually. You know, the 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 one positive outcome, maybe there's more, but I I don't see them. But one of the positive outcomes of COVID mm. is it created an opportunity 
to really accelerate virtual mental health services. Oh my gosh, I couldn't agree more. So for example, um, Inkblot is a wonderful resource. I can't encourage people enough. If you're not seeing a therapist and maybe economic resources are tough, Inkblot, which is an insurance, I think it's Green Shield. Okay, we'll link that in the episode Yeah, show notes are great. You know, it's an online portal, but there's many other services out there Um, and many practitioners that, that do virtual. So it is a secure site that I use, mm-hmm. um, Canadian site, and very similar. It can be done from the comfort of your own home as well as you did uh, phone sessions. Mm-hmm. Some people really prefer audio. As a client myself, yep. I do all three. Yeah. Sometimes I go in person. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's audio. I've had people who like to walk their dog while, while they're talking they talk. to me. Love what it. do I care? That's great. Good yeah. for you. Movement is medicine. That feels good. Yeah. So that's generally what it looks like with me. Mm-hmm. It's um, and you know, I'm what's called an integrative therapist. So I choose the modality based on the person before me. Um, I'm not structured. I don't just offer one particular type. Yeah. So, you know, for example, um, I'm always focused on things like interpersonal uh, therapy, which is really about connecting with the person. Sounds very similar to mm-hmm. to what you went through. Um, I do some cognitive behavioral therapy techniques because I think they're great for people, very exercise based. Yes. You can take them with them. So I use a lot of different modalities based on the individual's needs. I love that. That's amazing. So how long do you work with your clients? You know, is this something that they come for months and months and months? Is this something that sometimes they only want to come for one or two sessions and and then they feel that that's enough? Like what 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 do you normally suggest? I think that's a very individual thing. So mm-hmm. um, solution-focused counseling is a technique, and I do use that depending on the individual. Sometimes people want, only want to come to see me once or twice. Mm-hmm. They just want to spend an hour and talk to somebody about yeah. something that's going on for them. Yes. I think if that works for them, that's great. Other people I've seen for years, and it might be once a week to start. It might be once every two weeks. And mm-hmm. sometimes you see them, they pop up on your schedule once every three months. Yes, it's just based on their needs, it's right? It's based on the mm-hmm. needs, I yeah. know for myself, there's times where I'm going once a week and there's times where I'm going every two weeks. And then there's been a few periods where I've been, you know, three weeks. But um, I love that, especially with virtual, you know, there's so there's so much grace with it. And you're just able to really work around your own schedule mm-hmm. and what, what your needs are, right? So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I know that you've you've talked a little bit about it. And is this something that you work with patients quite often on? Complex post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder, otherwise known as developmental trauma or CPTSD. Yeah. So it's a relatively new consideration, although I believe that it's probably been affecting people for generations. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that this uh, will change over time. So currently, complex post-traumatic stress disorder is not listed um, in the DSM-5. So the DSM-5 is is what we use. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Clinical Disorders. Is this how you diagnose people? Yeah, that's okay. right. I mean, this is a very political subject. Yes. And I sort of fall into the camp that a diagnosis does not necessarily serve a human. Mm -hmm. I think a diagnosis is often a constellation or a cluster of symptoms. Now, it can be very important, a diagnosis, because it can then lead to proper health care, 
proper Mm self-care, potentially proper medication, and a deeper sense of understanding. Mm -hmm. It can also do the opposite. It can create a sense of helplessness, shame that comes around it. But the complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, also, you know, developmental trauma hasn't yet made the cut for the DSM-5, which is a North American manual. It has made it into other international manuals. Yes. But what it is, is death by a thousand cuts, really. Okay. Mm -hmm. So post-traumatic stress disorder has only been around since the late 70s, early 80s as a diagnosis. And and you're shaking your head. I couldn't agree more. It's hard to imagine. It is. But prior to that time, so pioneers in this this world, like Bessel van der Kolk, who's really well known for his book, The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. You know, a seminal piece of work. And I think everyone should read it. But pioneers, Peter Levine and others, who really said to the community, there has to be something going on with veterans when they come back from uh, war or working overseas and they see traumatic events. Maybe they do mm-hmm. things that they can't seem to get over. They've experienced traumatic events. And there has to be a reason that they're exhibiting certain symptoms, flashbacks, yeah. inability to have regulation of emotions, um, inability to go and do certain things, okay? Okay. And what they determined was that after much research, they could come to this agreement that there was a condition called post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, of course, we also see this with um, folks that work in the military or that work in policing or nursing. So post-traumatic stress disorder in a clinical term is often considered to be, as it is in the DSM, an event or a series of events over a period of time that interrupt an ability of a person to function in a healthy, normal way after the event, not necessarily immediately, but over time. Mm -hmm. So we can think about, for example, um, a a car accident, um, child sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a rape, um, even a a natural disaster. If it is a one-time event that causes an outcome That's really what post-traumatic stress disorder largely has looked at as kind of an event. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder, developmental trauma, on the other hand, is not one time, one thing, but a multitude of things over time. Right. Right. Reoccurring. Reoccurring. So how we generally see that is it occurs in children who are in the developmental phase of their life, who are growing. Well, arguably, we're always in a developmental phase, but it occurs to us as children where there is abuse and there is neglect mm-hmm. and the environment is unsafe and it is not one thing, but it is death by a thousand cuts in that it is many, many, many things, mm-hmm. okay, that are occurring. Yeah. And that has an impact. Now, what's interesting is complex trauma, CPTSD, has often been considered associated with what we call uh, borderline personality disorder. Right. Now, if you want to create fear in people... You just say, well, it's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't know if there's a mental health condition out there that gets worse stigma than borderline personality. You know what's funny? Even as you said it, I felt my body tighten up. I saw that in you, right? Yeah. Because, but it's not to say one's bad and one's not bad. I mean, borderline personality disorder, we generally know comes from environmental factors, Mm -hmm. not dissimilar to how you grew up and probably how I grew up. Yeah. So complex trauma. I mean, we're learning so much. 
like all of these disorders, there's a continuum of experiences that occur mm-hmm. for a person based on what they're living with and experiencing. So complex trauma is not a one-time event, but a multitude of factors that occur mm-hmm. um, for an individual. Working with patients that have CPTSD, what forms of healing modalities do you find work? What What are you seeing when it comes to your patients that are diagnosed to, with it that are really helpful? Okay. So, I mean, first of all, let's talk about what are the symptoms that someone has and yes. what are they experiencing yes. when they have complex, uh, complex PTSD. So again, a constellation of symptoms that can often include like things like depression, anxiety, um, you know, even like some forms of psychosis, having flashbacks or nightmares. Now, this sounds very similar to things like generalized uh, PTSD or not generalized, but PTSD. Mm-hmm. But also things like emotions that don't fit the situation. Right. A heightened degree of fear of abandonment. General scarcity. Um, fear of intimacy. A nervousness about relationships in general. Yes. A constant waiting for the other shoe to drop. Oh, gosh, do I relate A strong, to that. activated system that is always waiting for bad things to happen. So those would be the symptoms. But then there's the behaviors. Mm-hmm. And the behaviors could include difficult relationships, putting ourselves in repetitive relationships that are not healthy for us. Because when we were growing up, we didn't have an appropriate regulation system within our families of origin to know how to relate to people. Or if we experience neglect and abuse and, and, you know, many other things, there's a belief system that can kick in about who we are and what we deserve. So there's symptoms that occur and then there's behaviors. So I think it's important to kind of know that. And sometimes what can happen is, actually, this is really my story. I mean, aren't we all born to damaged souls, right? Oh, gosh. And, you know, Jess, I I say this to my patients a lot, and that is there are no sinners and saints in this room. There are facts and things that happened. And so a lot of people will say, I had a really good mother and a really good father, but my dad used to drink and my mother left, et cetera, and so on. Okay, well, let's just line those things up for a minute. Yeah. Okay? Because both can be true. So I have many good memories and experiences in my family of origin. And then I have many dark, dark days and Mm -hmm. things that happened. So I grew up in a family where uh, there were, um, you know, divorce, constellation of family members and people that are involved in my life. Um, Yes, sure, everybody's doing the best they can with what they had, but there was neglect. Yeah. And there was abuse. Um, you know, there was parentification of me caring for siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lack of safety and security. There were mental health conditions of care providers and all of those things together, especially the instability of the yes. family unit over the multitude of years resulted in a lot of damage to me. Mm-hmm. And I made a lot of choices early in my life out of a survival system. Yes. So this is the thing about trauma, right? Trauma is not the event that happened. Trauma is about what happens inside of you because of the event. Yes. 
So true. It's not like when I listen to your story, you were already traumatized by the time you got to that trailer. Oh, yes, very much. You you were already traumatized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was already living in survival mode. You were already yeah. living in survival mode. So trauma is, I can't say that enough. It's not the event. Mm -hmm. Like Dr. Mate talks so um, eloquently about this, that trauma is everywhere in our society. And it's also the most unseen thing. A hundred percent. So we talk about, oh, this happened and I was traumatized. Well, the reality is if you had an impactful event and you had sorrow from that event, that's sorrow. But trauma is what happens inside of you and you're constricted and you have the inability to live a full, free, calm life. You can't get over things in the same way as other people. Yes. You repeat patterns that are unhealthy. There's a constriction and it fundamentally changes the way you see the world. Mm -hmm. That's different. Yeah. So you may have had suffering and you may have had sorrow and you can still go to therapy for those. Yes. Right. Yeah. You can overcome. Those. You can overcome those, and you can overcome complex trauma. But those are different things. Mm -hmm. And there's not a winner and a loser, one better than the other. I mean, I, I know many people who've been through a traumatic event that were not traumatized. Yes. The event was traumatic mm -hmm. and their experience was very difficult and there's much suffering. Yeah. I even know, you know, as an example of this and other practitioners may argue, but I, I've had clients that have lived through child sexual abuse, but haven't had an outcome of trauma because they had a protective factors around them. They got help immediately. Mm. There were family, friends, support and service that wrapped around. And there's been lasting impacts, which one could argue is traumatic, but they wouldn't necessarily fall in the camp of living a life where your trauma is out front. Because mm -hmm. that's what trauma does to you. Unresolved trauma yeah. means that in your life, you repeat patterns and it shows up. So if I have an argument yeah. with my husband and it's a run-of-the-mill argument and I react in a way that means that I have to go and hide and I'm hyperventilating and I think he's going to leave and, you know, life is going to crumble and I knew this was going to happen and I'm in a total spiral and a lather. Well, guess what? That's trauma from the past mm -hmm. that is out front. That's yes. constricting my ability to live. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a home that had a lot of instability, um, a lot of challenges, and as a response to that, developed skills that were coping and completely adaptive for yes. that environment, mm -hmm. but totally maladaptive as an adult. Yes. As you're saying that and speaking about the sexual assault survivors who have come out a little bit differently mm -hmm. because of the mm -hmm. supports that they had mm -hmm. around them, which really brings me to ask the question, connection and trauma. So if someone's gone through something that is incredibly traumatic, the connection that they have with the loved ones around them, what I'm hearing is that really impacts how they heal from it and how it affects them. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, those protective factors, you can't say enough about mm -hmm. them because, you know, we as humans, I mean, so I'm going to go a little bit to how trauma is in the body. I love this. This That was going to be what I wanted to ask you next. And this has been kind of a new learning and acceptance for me. I, I haven't spent a lot of time talking about this. Mm -hmm. Your central nervous system is totally picking me up right now. I can, I, can feel, <laughs> I can feel it. I can feel your central nervous system. So I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Oh, Catherine, I'm so sorry. 
I love that you said that. I know how incredibly difficult that was. I could feel it. But for me, as someone who is in total awe of you and for your patients who I have no doubt Mm -hmm. are in total awe of you, I can't imagine how many people just felt so seen and inspired because if you can overcome something like that and be the person you are today with this um, direction of service and helping people and really... um, I, I just can't even tell yeah. you how much that meant to me mm-hmm. that you, you well, did this that. is like, actually, um, one of the interesting things is like, I'm having like a big coming out party because I really haven't spoken about this. Mm-hmm. There's going to be people who are going to listen to this in my own family They're gonna be shocked. that are going to be shocked, but it is the truth and it is what happened. And, um, you know, like you, very different stories. Okay. And there, mm-hmm. like, there's no suffering Olympics here, folks. Like, yes, this I is, love that. Like, I, I really think a lot of people are going to hear stories and be like, well, my experience wasn't that bad. It was only this and that. There's no suffering Olympics mm-hmm. because this is just part of life. Yes. And right? I felt that with my episode coming out. I think I even said to you, you know, I had a moment right before going, it wasn't that bad. People are going to think I'm just whining. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And so I think there's this depression. Well, what do we do when we're depressed? We push it down. Mm -hmm. We kind of depress these feelings. We repress as well. But, you know, I experienced, um, uh, child sexual abuse and it's, there's, I'm still working through a lot of the details and a lot of it, I really put away for many, many years and haven't looked at and touched at it. But I know that there was repetitive patterns in my life that were showing up. I came out of my youth, um, you know, making interesting choices, getting involved with much older men, as an example, making bad choices and decisions that I was just reliving this trauma, Um, experienced sexual assault as a young woman again. Yes. Right. So, you know, kind of watch this continuum. And I was sort of like, I like to say that I grew up kind of like right on the edge and the fringes because it it was like almost terrible, but also kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> like right on the fringes of mm-hmm. things. And it was really dependent on the environment. And, you know, one of the things that we learn in Compassionate Inquiry, which is Dr. Gaber Mate's training program, he talks about the importance of the question, who did you talk to? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no one, that is a major indicator of what was going on in your life. Yes. So why didn't I tell anyone? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't tell anyone because there was so much shit going on in my family and so many other things, or I just knew that I couldn't talk about it. Yeah. Was it a fear of not being believed or a fear of they couldn't take on anymore? I don't think as a child, I had the capacity to probably compute that. Mm-hmm. I think as children, you're just, you're a product of your environment. You know, when you're a child, biologically, you are completely vulnerable and dependent on the caregivers around yes. you. Yeah. You're at their mercy. You are at their mercy. And our survival system, so our biological survival system is we need to be connected in order to survive. Yes. Even as adults, people often say, I don't know why I care so much what other people think. Well, biologically, you are designed to care because if you are shunned from the group, you will not survive. We as mammals need one another and we need a group. Yeah. So biologically, as children, we're attuned and connected to our parents because they are providing for Mm -hmm. us. And what we will do is we will repress our own authenticity 
in the service of connection every day of the week and twice on Sundays Mm -hmm. because we need them to survive. Yeah. So we learn without even words what is okay and what's not okay. If you grew up hearing, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Oh, yes. If if you grew up being told you're a chatterbox, stop talking too much. If you grew up being told you should be um, out of sight and out of mind. You just described me as a child. <laughs> I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. But if you heard those things, yeah. then you learned very early in your environment not to go to places and talk about things. Now, some of my, well, my, many of my memories are broken and scattered and you know, I had a conversation this morning where I was like, I don't even really know if I need to put them all back together. I think there's a protective factor. The brain protects mm-hmm. that from you. And I know what I know to be true. And I'm working through that. Right. And it's an everyday journey. But it at this point in my life, I don't feel like that chapter of my life defines or gets in my way. But it is part of my story. It's part of my experience. And it's part of Uh, my journey of healing is understanding that for myself. So trauma occurs in the body. Again, it's not what happened to you. It's what happened inside of you because of it, but it's stored in the body. What's curious about us humans is when we interface with a traumatic event and we go through trauma, we typically disconnect or we learn to disconnect from our bodies. So true. But I think we do that in society. Mm -hmm. We're not real good about asking about really how we're feeling. It's always about what we're thinking. Yes. So our bodies will give us a lot of cues and information. And I was super resistant to this. And I think it's because I was, I was very uncomfortable talking about body and about what was in the body because I was hiding and holding back childhood sexual abuse. Yes. So I didn't want to go even in my practice talking about things in the body because I was still not dealing with my own shit. Yeah. So um, trauma is in the body. It stays within the body, which is why modalities like yoga mm-hmm. work so well. Yeah. Like physical, like Reiki moda- modalities that include movement and dance and creative dance. That's a big stretch for me. I'm never doing creative dance, but yes. I will go and do yoga. Yes. So there's a lot of actually, you know, there's a lot of research that would suggest that yoga, as an example, has as much efficacy in mental health outcomes and treatment than antidepressants mm. or anti-anxiety medication. Even through doing Pilates, there's so much breath work, mm-hmm. right? And yes. I, that in itself is just so calming. And then the gentle movements combined, I really, you really do feel your nervous system kind of start to regulate. And by the end of it, even if it's 10 minutes, I just feel like a new person. One thing I wanted to talk about sure. with trauma in the body I really relate to this. I wondered for so many years, I was always sick. Yeah. There was always something wrong with me. I had terrible gut issues and stomach aches constantly. And um, looking back, and now that I've worked through so many things, oh my gosh, all those things are gone. You know, I don't feel them as often. And I had no, this idea of trauma is stored in the body. I had no idea. It's something that I feel is really very new. Yeah, well, I I mean, I think the whole field of trauma study is really new, right? Mm-hmm. Again, you know, only really going back until the 70s and 80s. Although there there is a book called uh, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Mm-hmm. And the original title of that book was um, Prisoners of Childhood. And it's a seminal um seminal book, and we'll, we'll include it in the show yes, notes. Yes, absolutely. And it does talk about early days about how trauma is is in the body but it is a relatively new phenomenon and mm-hmm. therefore relatively new understanding 
And I, I mean, when, when you look at trauma survivors and you look at, for example, the rates of, of um, autoimmune conditions, when you look at chronic fatigue, when you consider sickness, just routine immune sickness rates, what you start to find is there, there's a direct connection between the immune system, the autoimmune systems in your body, and how all of these interconnect and interrelate. Right. That makes total sense right? to me. So there is, it is stored in the body. And there's a lot of, like, I, by practice, am not a somatic therapist, other than now working in Compassion Inquiry, which is very much about the recognition that it's, that it's stored in our bodies. And then how do you get it out of your body? Well, I suppose that's a big part of the unconscious uh, processing and conscious processing that we do. And and I think that, you know, there's a lot of space here and a lot of work that we still have to do to really understand that. Absolutely. And you mentioned again, Compassion Inquiry. Um, you know, I, I would love for you to explain what exactly that is. I know it's um, a program that you're doing with Dr. Gabor Mate. You had actually shared with me before we did this episode, some show notes and just some things that you had been working on and his movie, The Wisdom of Trauma, you had linked and I had actually already seen it. I watched it a few months ago and it completely changed me in so many ways. You know, it heavily focuses on addiction and that connection and how trauma affects people and how it leads into addiction. And I got to tell you, for me personally, the way it helped me look at my mom in particular, completely changed. And I used to be, you know, really, I was very loud about how I felt about addiction. And it, it, it is not the same as I feel now. Previously, just because of what I had been through with my, with my own mother, I really had zero patience for it. To me, it was not a disease. It was a choice that she chose over me. And it was very painful for me. And I think to just part of my own healing journey, having compassion for that and seeing that she was that way because of things she had not healed from, right? And seeing her more as a human and less as somebody that did something really awful to me. And that movie was very, very powerful. And I, I really think that everybody should watch it. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic piece of work mm-hmm. and really definitely gets you thinking. Addiction is an interesting topic in our society mm-hmm. because it's, it's one of those words that's so loaded. Addict. Yes. Addict addiction. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the 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 greatest indicator that you're going to have an addiction issue is just being born human. Yeah. That's it. Wow. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, like, you're right. Like because we get addicted to lots of things. Mm-hmm. Any, it doesn't have to be drugs. It, no. I mean, anytime that we garner value out of consuming, yeah. out of doing, out of a behavior that eventually stops serving us, but it's a compulsion to keep doing it is by virtue and addiction. Yes. And I actually mentioned in the first, and I think I say it in the second episode, um, you know, mine was shopping. Yes. Mine too. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. I didn't reach for the drugs and the alcohol. I did reach for shopping though. And I felt through watching that, I was like, oh, her addiction really isn't that different from mine. Right. I'm, I can actually relate. It helped me relate to her on a different level and not be so angry. It helped you understand mm-hmm. your mom's reach to manage pain totally was also your reach mm-hmm. to manage pain. Yeah. And I think through healing too, I no longer see that anger. All I see is people's pain. Yeah. And, and there comes a point, I think, in the work that we do is we do start to see 
the events as an event, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We talked about modalities earlier. This is where something called eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, EMDR is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I myself have have ton, done as a client EMDR that was massively important for my own experience right. in neutralizing events in my life to then allow me to look back at them and not feel as triggered um, by them. But the the wisdom of trauma is a a great um, opportunity, I think, to learn more about also our own biases and judgments around addiction. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking a lot about um, Gabber Mate and, and that's, I mean, first of all, he does wonderful work. Second, he's here in British Columbia yes. and has served close the downtown east side close to home and really well known. I had the opportunity to spend a weekend in a workshop most recently and saw the work that he does. He offers compassion inquiry, which is um, considered an approach, not a modality. So unlike other therapeutic modalities that are perhaps tested, that have different kinds of, you know, I suppose, um, academic rigor, although I think this certainly has that as well, he defines it as an approach and how we work with people. It's almost like stepping stones, like you go here and then you go there and you work with people, but it's all about understanding the unconscious experiences or conscious experiences mm-hmm. that we've held back or repressed or created a story around, but are but it's still leading us. It's still out front. Mm-hmm. The behaviors are still out front. Yeah. So it's about kind of working through that and understanding that and really understanding where is the pain. When we talk about doing inner child work, which used to make me squirm. Because oh, me too. I, I was like, I am not going to read my inner child bedtime story. No. Like ever. <laughs> I am like, I'm an academic. That is how I identify. Yes. I've overcome, you know, my learning disability and I'm really smart and I put on a great front. Yeah. And I'm not doing that. But actually inner child work is all about going back to the pain point and knowing where did that happen. Mm-hmm. And then embracing the opportunity to be the wise adult or be the parent that you never had. Yeah. Right. And so that's really what inner child work is about. And that's a lot of what compassion inquiry about is about. But it's also about applying compassion to those compulsions and behaviors Mm -hmm. that you have. So your mother struggled with drug and alcohol addiction, Mm -hmm. as I understand it. And that didn't just materialize for her. No. She probably was baptized in trauma. Oh, yes. And engulfed in it mm-hmm. and lived in it for many, many years. Yeah. So her compulsions were to manage the pain. We we say, don't look at the addiction, look at the pain. Yes. Like, what is the pain that is driving the behavior? Mm-hmm. And therefore, that is applicable to eating, yeah. to alcohol, to sex, to pornography, to shopping, to smartphones, mm-hmm. to certain, any kind of compulsion. Yeah. It's an, it's an adaptation that was completely adaptive at the time. Yeah. And we move from that into then addiction. But of course, um, you know, there's a whole history on the war on drugs in North America, mm-hmm. a criminalization of those that are using drugs and a stigma yeah, therein. For sure. So it does definitely. Yeah. So how does CI Compassion Inquiry aid in trauma recovery? And are you using it now in your in your practice? I am using it now uh, in my practice. And again, it's an approach and there are many different types of approaches and modalities out there. The way that I think compassionate inquiry is so powerful is when we're talking to people in therapy, Mm -hmm. we run the risk of validating the story and validating the feelings 
but never really doing anything else. Yeah. And to me, that's not worth somebody's money mm-hmm. because I could go to a therapist every day of the week and explain how I feel and get validated, but that's not going to help me change the behavior, the compulsion, the thinking, yeah. the brokenness. It's just going to validate me. Mm-hmm. But what compassion inquiry does is it goes back to the wound through the body. So where are you feeling that in the body? Mm-hmm. Is that the first time that you felt that? Probably not. What is the earliest memory that you have of that feeling in your body? Wow. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. You felt that then. What was going on then? Yeah. Who could you talk to about what was going on then? Can we apply compassion to whatever is occurring for you now? And I imagine the layers just start to peel back. The layers just start to peel back. So, you know, there's a lot of opinions about different ways that we work with people. Mm -hmm. You often hear people try to avoid triggers. Well, actually, I think triggers are this great gift Mm -hmm. because if I get triggered, it means that there's something in me that I still got to figure out. Yeah, you got to pay attention. I got to pay attention to. We run around this world trying not to trigger other people. I think we should probably feel triggered. Mm -hmm. You don't have to act on it. Yeah. You can just feel it. Yes. I'm feeling really triggered in this moment over something that person said. What's in me that's going on? Yes. And it's it's very uncomfortable to do that. And it's funny when you're in when the in the everyday life, you don't know you don't want to look at yourself. No. You all you see is that somebody else is doing something to you. So it's it's really a skill to be able to stop and think like, what what is what is this? Ha- why is this happening? What what can I do about it? It's it's right. not something that comes naturally to people. Well, let me ask you the question: Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that we're so hell bent on creating the facade or not looking at ourselves? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was always just making sure that nobody could see what was going on in the inside, right? And it's how I wanted to present myself to the world. I didn't want to seem weak or any, and getting in that mode of, um, you know, as a victim, right? And propelling whatever was coming at me. That's your, your, you did that to me, right? Mm. So through, you know, there's a lot of self-reflection that I think has to go on and you have to be ready. I don't think everyone is ready. You have to do it when you're ready. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I also think that uh, for a lot of us that grew up in tougher circumstances, Mm -hmm. it became, for me at least, I, I wanted to distance myself from those experiences, those emotions, that environment as quickly as I could. Yeah. And I also didn't want to be associated with it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be the disheveled, dirty kid yeah. in a single parent household going to school. Um, I didn't want to have to to kind of um, be associated with the police being at my house yeah. the night before. And I didn't want people to know me as being, you know, living in low income and yeah. all these other things. And yes. so I think I built for me a whole bunch of defense mechanisms and walls to kind of try to separate myself Mm -hmm. from that, disassociate from that, I suppose. And, um, and I think most of us as humans are running around with, you know, personality could be argued is just a series of these defense mechanisms. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about being a human and growing and learning and being Mm -hmm. on your journey is that you can really stop and take a look at those and say like, is this serving me or am I being authentic? Yes. I learned to disconnect. Therapy, in my perspective, is really about learning to reconnect with yourself mm-hmm. and your authenticity. Yeah. it's That's what it's really about. It's For about sure. learning to be in the here and now present moment mm-hmm. and understanding, am I bringing things from, from the past that don't belong in this yes. moment, but I'm layering it on? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think that's a big part. I of really would agree with you. I would say I've spent most of my life feeling so disconnected from myself that I didn't even realize until I started to really dig into this. I've never felt more aligned with myself and I didn't even know what that could feel like. It's, it's amazing, really. Mm-hmm. It's, and it has helped you, when you do that too, it helps you build boundaries. It helps you be okay with boundaries. You become more comfortable with it, which helps you, you know, live a more regulated life, really. You know, I'm curious, um, with this work that you're doing and this program you're doing with Compassion Inquiry, how has this helped you kind of navigate your own your own childhood and the things that had happened to you and the sexual abuse that you that you suffered from? How how has it helped you? Yeah, like I think in the context of my own story, childhood sexual abuse is one chapter. One layer. Right? Yeah. There were so many other things going on. Um, I don't, I mean, this might sound like an odd thing, but I don't see that as sort of being like the worst thing that occurred. There were so many other things going Mm -hmm. on and there were also many, many happy days and many good people in the story. So I don't want to paint a picture of my experience, um, as, as being terrible Mm -hmm. and and awful. So you had that connection sometimes. Yes. Not all. Okay. You know, this is the complexity of CPTSD Mm -hmm. is that there's this sort of myriad when you are being, when you are living in an environment where your caregivers, and I say caregivers purposefully, it doesn't have to be parents, but your caregivers mm-hmm. are unable to attune to you and give you what you need. Um, that's very difficult because you need them to survive. Yes. Right. And so you, you have a different kind of experience, a developmental experience, which is very different than if you grow up with more stability. Now, I mean, Nobody gets out of this unscathed, okay? right? Like 100%. you can grow up in the yes. best family <laughs> with, and, and there's sort of like this myth of the perfect childhood. Like you can grow up in the best family and God willing me, and I'm sure you mm-hmm. pray every day that we're doing a far better job. And by all the metrics we are yes. with our own kids, but I don't want to paint the story here that I had this terrible, awful, you know, full stop, uh, yeah. growing up there are points in the story that have deviations mm-hmm. and challenges that align with the challenges that my caregivers were having and the situation that they were experiencing and the socioeconomics mm-hmm. and the intergenerational components that go with that. Yeah. So I think that's important to yes. say. You felt loved. I did feel loved with conditions though. Yeah. And I, and I did, I did feel that there were people in my life that loved me. Mm-hmm. And I'm very grateful for that because I actually think what is the difference maker in my story and and arguably you know my brother's story that kept us from from really going a completely different direction yeah. it probably was that we had enough protective factors that yeah. occurred um to support us mm-hmm. but it was a complicated experience and a and a complex set of circumstances right. that we were navigating every day as kids mm-hmm. and complex trauma is a big part of that mm-hmm. um, as a big part of that is you're just constantly navigating and and I want to just touch a little bit on um compassion inquiry and then go to the central yes. nervous system because there's some yes. connections here so compassionate inquiry for me I'm learning to trust my body a lot more I'm learning to lean in and know that the answers are in me. And what do I feel? What do I really feel in this moment? Because what I feel is probably truth. What I think is a made up story to support my construct. Yes. Yes. So I what do I really feel here about this? Right. Mm-hmm. What What's really happening in my body that's giving me some good intel. And, and that's not easy for me because I've disconnected from my body 100% yeah. full stop. 
probably as an outcome of, of abuse, probably as an outcome of assault, probably as an outcome mm-hmm. of living um, in a complex trauma environment. For sure. And I also suffered with a disordered eating for many years. So that's a whole other uh, ability to disconnect. Absolutely. Um, also, yeah. interestingly, uh, eating disorders and um, alcoholism have a high correlation to complex trauma. We now know from research. So when I look at these for many, many years, I really just kind of thought, okay, I had a difficult childhood. There was some trauma there and, you know, that I had an eating disorder because of it, because mm-hmm. that makes sense. You know, I was out of control and I was trying to establish control yes. and I was never feeling good Absolutely. enough, and et cetera, and so on, trying to fit in, belonging, et cetera. Compassion Inquiry is teaching me there's a lot more layers there. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is um, I have never been a dreamer. I'm not someone who dreams very much. Right. At all. And since I really leaned in Compassion and Inquiry, I'm dreaming all the time. Yeah. Not necessarily of things that have happened in my past or anything scary or anything upsetting, but I think I'm just getting a lot more in tune Mm -hmm. with myself. So I find it to be a very good approach in addition to other things that I use with people. Right. Right. So let's just bridge to this whole central nervous system yes, thing, I'd love because to. this is kind of a fascinating thing that I think is important for people to understand. And it relates deeply to compassionate inquiry because it's all about the body. Yes. So we have a central nervous system. People probably remember grade seven science, yep. right? Where you learn about the body and the central nervous system. And, you know, this is the system that sends signals from the brain to the heart, to the kidneys, that yep. runs through your spinal cord, et cetera, and so on. And of course, we learn about the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. Right. So the parasympathetic nervous system is your rest and digest state. It's when you feel a sense of calm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, really around recovery. It's your safe space. Right. And your sympathetic nervous system is an act when it's activated. um, It's your fight or flight and your perform state. But the fight or flight which we hear about um, as a survival system. It's a biological system that keeps you Mm -hmm. alive. When that becomes activated um, and your fight or flight system is activated, a subset of of hormones and chemicals get pumped throughout your body. Mm -hmm. So these are things like cortisol and adrenaline and epinephrine and other things. And so how can that show up physically? Well, when you're in, if anybody's ever been like in a fight or flight, Mm -hmm. you know it, you're triggered and you know it. Mm -hmm. Um, You need it to like chase a bear away from your baby or lift a car or do something heroic. Yes. Because you need those chemicals in your body in order to help you survive. Mm -hmm. It's survival. But when you are a child living in trauma and you're living in an unsafe, unstable environment and you are constantly being hit with um, situations that result in fight or flight, you have this thing that happens where you are living in high levels of these hormones and there's a whole bunch of interplays that are complex and I won't speak to because I think there's people out there that can do a far better justice. But the punchline is it changes your brain. Mm-hmm. When you are never allowed to be safe and be in a parasymp- or be, be in the parasympathetic nervous system, when you're in the sympathetic nervous system and you are like always in that activation, yeah, then the outcome to that is it changes your brain. It changes your ability, it changes the ability to have memory and cognition and learning. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that is really important to know because a lot of people live their life in that fight or flight state all the time. It's almost like a light switch that went on and you can't pull it down or a breaker that's Mm -hmm. stuck. I've lived that way my entire life. And so you're just always on edge waiting for the shoe to drop, anxious, nervous energy, people that don't like to be alone, Mm -hmm. um, that are constantly checking. Are you okay? Is everything okay? How are you feeling? Oh my goodness. Just just, just living in that constant state because the world was never safe place. Yes. Yeah. So part of healing is learning to train the body through breath work and through safety and through meditation and Mm -hmm. through yoga and through, you know, therapy to be comfortable being in a safe space, being in that part of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. There's a whole other body of work called polyvagal theory, and I encourage people to to look into it. Yeah. You should probably do a show on it because yeah. it's really fascinating. There's sort of another another theory that says there's a whole other channel of the nervous system. Yeah. It's the vagus nerve, which is the tenth cranial nerve, runs through the body, and that's really what we call our social um, engagement system. So there's some evidence to prove that our nervous systems can sense another person's experiences, emotions, um, their, their nervous systems are talking to one another before words are even said up to yes. 15 to 25 seconds before people speak. Yes. That's what we call reading the room. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. I, I do that. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. naturally. Yeah. And I love what you said earlier about your gut. You're, you're learning to trust that and listen to it where it's something that's come very naturally to my, my whole life. So the difference between my husband and I, he very much uses his head and he's like logic and all that. And I follow my gut with everything, every decision I make. And we have had a very hard time really understanding each other because of that. Yeah. Well, you would have had to, because your gut instinct is what kept you alive. You know, for, yeah. for, for many, many millions of years, humans lived in hunter-gatherer tribes and we had to rely on our, our survival instincts. Mm-hmm. We didn't like sit around and think about, well, if we like don't migrate this way, right. then this is probably an outcome that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. No, there was like a necessity mm-hmm. to rely on this, this system, this yeah. social regulation system. Um, to rely on your gut instinct mm-hmm. in order to survive. Absolutely. But as we've evolved, we've really turned as a culture, of society to far more of a thinking society than a feeling society. And that thinking is great, but there's a lot of stories that we make up. So how does this connect? So if I live in a home where there's a lot of stuff going on and I start to develop beliefs about myself, yeah. which is I am not worthy, I'm different, I don't belong because I'm learning that about myself. I'm unlovable because my primary caregivers can't give me love or there's something wrong with me. If that's the belief I have, then I have a story that encompasses that belief in every relationship Mm -hmm. I go to. So then I start to get in relationships that reinforce that. I start to put myself in situations that reinforce it. That's the thinking about the belief that was wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. So here's that sort of gut thinking Mm -hmm. conundrum, which kind of comes back to compassion inquiry, because then as you're starting to go through it, you need to really learn to forgive yourself and give yourself, you know, compassion for those decisions you made. You were really that's something that's been very difficult for me is forgiving myself for some of those choices and situations I put myself in. I love your perspective on these things. I love the way that you articulate it. And I would really love to know, actually, 
now learning so much about you and the things that you have been through and your history with trauma, what is one piece of advice that you, you know, would share with your younger self? Yeah, I think there was actually two thoughts that I had there. Um, and, and one of them, I absolutely know that when I'm 70, I'll be wishing I would have told this to my 48 year old self. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Um, because it's probably the same. The first one is like, don't be so serious. Mm. Don't be so serious. Um, have a little more fun. Um, go and enjoy things more, you know, go and go and just like embrace it, embrace life. Yes. I love that. I know that that's what I would tell myself, my younger self. And I know that that's what my 70 or 80 year old self would tell me sitting in this chair today. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of too simple because I couldn't have told myself that at the times that I'm thinking because I was totally living my adaptive self in my adaptive Mm -hmm. self because of what, what had, what had gone on and what was going on. So it's not really easy to go back in time because, you know, time is a context and relationships are a context, but the most important thing that I would probably tell myself, and I think it's so important for others is your feelings are not facts and they often lie to you. Mm, So true. You might feel that you're stupid, that you're fat, that you're worthless. You might feel that nobody loves you. You might feel that mm-hmm. everyone's going to leave you. You might feel like life is never going to get better. You might feel like a terrible parent. You might feel like you're just never going to amount to anything. Your feelings are not facts. Yes. Feelings are like the weather. They come mm-hmm. and go. They move through us. And those feelings are probably maladaptions. They're a belief, yeah. actually, that you have about yourself because of experiences that you had. But I lived, Jesslyn, a lot of my life believing my feelings. Yes. With an eating disorder, I felt fat. Mm-hmm. In relationships, I felt unworthy. In my career, I never felt good enough. Mm-hmm. Well, those feelings were incorrect, and they're incorrect today. Yeah. Yeah, I love that because, you know, as I was trying to think of, you know, what I would love to tell my younger self, exactly what I wrote down was what you're thinking is not true. What you're thinking is not true. You are worth it. You're worth the work, the love, the effort. You are worth all of it. And um, it was something I, you know, I also never believed. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this was such a fabulous, incredible, like, I just felt like you were speaking directly to me the entire time. You, I just felt so seen and I just, I'm so grateful that you were here. You know, Catherine, where can everybody find you? Where can everybody find me? Well, I am on Instagram and I am on Facebook and I do have a website. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Perfect. I'm sure you'll link it. Yes, we will link it. And um, you are on Instagram at, at Momentum Coaching Services. Is that right? That's right. Perfect. Yeah, we'll make sure to link it. And thank you so much for joining me today. This has just been a really incredible conversation. I'm I'm well, so, so blessed that you're here with me. Thank you for having, having me. And um, it's been a, a real... Uh, journey to spend this time with you and to share a number of these things. And um, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Anytime. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that today's episode provided insight, inspiration, and comfort to anyone who is dealing with the effects of trauma. Remember, you are not defined by your scars and you are not alone in your healing journey. 
If you enjoyed listening, please make sure to rate, review, and share this episode with a friend who could benefit from listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.